You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello and welcome to episode 7.1 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist moderating today's episode. And with me today are the regular panelists, Sarah Maro-Sunilia, and our podcast creator and leader and editor, Victoria Farmer. Hello, Sarah and Victoria. Hello. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. All right, I'll go first. I'm Sarah Morrow Cernelia. My husband and I currently live in High Point, North Carolina, where I teach high school English at the region's only non-sectarian independent school for grades pre-K through 12. I'm also a doctoral candidate at FSU, and one of these days I will finally get around to finishing my dissertation prospectus and actually start writing my dissertation, which will be on 18th century British drama. Victoria? Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I'm Victoria Farmer. My husband and I live in Waconia, Minnesota, and teach at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, There, I'm an adjunct focusing on English and sociology. Like Sarah, I'm very slowly finishing up a dissertation at Florida State. Uh, Though not terribly slowly at the moment, I uh, just finished a chapter draft, and I'm just over halfway done now, so that's pretty exciting. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Uh I'm Marie Haas and I'm also a doctoral candidate at FSU in Renaissance literature, also currently working on my dissertation, though not as far along as Victoria. Uh and I'm the daughter of missionaries who live in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. In today's episode, we're discussing Rachel Held Evans' Year of Biblical Womanhood as the first part of a focus on the debate over how biblical womanhood is defined or if any such thing should be thought of as existing at all. In the next episode, we'll continue this focus with a discussion of Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist. Rachel Held Evans is a blogger who's famous for writing on the development of her evangelical faith and also for her support of an egalitarian view of gender. Before we continue, it might be useful to quickly review the difference between the terms complementarian and egalitarian. Sarah, would you do that for us? Yeah, sure, I can. Um, As a quick introduction for those of our listeners who might not be familiar, or a quick review for those who are, um, the terms complementarian and egalitarian are used by Evans to refer to two different approaches to marriage. Um, A complementarian approach uh, holds that men and women have different strengths and skill sets unique to their genders that complement each other in marriage. Such an approach values uh, differentiation of roles along these gendered lines. So though an emphasis is placed uh, by some on the value of their, i.e. men's and women's worth, in some instances, these divisions can become very rigid. Uh, These sometimes take the form of phrases like servant leadership for men and submission for women. Um, An egalitarian approach to marriage, meanwhile, upholds the sameness, uh, the essential sameness of men and women in their humanity above gender difference. Uh, This approach focuses on equality, a democratic approach to marriage, if you will. Um, In this, roles are assigned or perhaps more accurately taken up by the person best qualified to complete the task, regardless of gender. Um, These descriptions are what I have been able to locate as um, the distinctions for Uh, A Protestant take on these terms, there is some debate about distinctions in terminology among Catholics, which uh, may or may not become important for our discussion later. Uh, Is there anything that I've overlooked or that I need to add, Victoria, Marie? 
no, that that sounds like a pretty clear distinction to me. Um, and it's it's one that's important to keep in mind and and talking about and thinking about uh, Rachel Held Evans project in the year of biblical womanhood because it because it's pretty central to what she's uh, trying to do here. Uh, Victoria, how would you describe uh, Evans' overall project uh, in this book or a summary of what she's doing? Um, before I get quite into that, I would like to say a little bit more generally that um, uh, that Evans is is kind of a, a touchy figure in in Christian circles. Um, she she seems to be one of those kind of lover hater um, public figures. And the people who criticize her do criticize her primarily for not being deep enough, um, not being theological enough. And it seems that she knows that because in the introduction to this book, she kind of leans into it. Um, The book opens in a hair salon and Evans is talking to her stylist, uh, having, because of this project, not cut her hair for a year. Um, She tells the stylist that, and the stylist says, why on earth would you do that? And then we have a a frame narrative for her explaining the scope of the project. And and I thought that that opening was really, really interesting, because um, in, in using that frame narrative we as a reader are then placed in the hair salon with these other women. So we're in this time-honored site of female community and woman-centered conversation, and that's what brings us into the book. Um, So I thought that was really cool that she seems to understand the problems that people have with her and just sort of lean into it and say, this is the kind of person that I am. And, And that's mostly what this book is. Uh, This book is mostly a woman-to-woman kind of chat about what Evan sees as common issues and problems, um, like the kind you'd talk about in a hair salon, though that's not everything the book is. Um, She does go a little deeper, particularly in her desire to both problematize and define the notion of biblical womanhood uh, about that problem, she says. Now, we evangelicals have a nasty habit of throwing the word biblical around like it's Martin Luther's middle name. We especially like to stick it in front of other loaded words like economics, sexuality, politics, and marriage to create the impression that God has definitive opinions about such things, opinions that just so happen to correspond with our own. Despite insistent claims that we don't pick and choose what parts of the Bible we take seriously, using the word biblical prescriptively like this almost always involves selectivity. Then she goes on, This is why the notion of biblical womanhood so intrigued me. Could an ancient collection of sacred texts spanning multiple genres and assembled over thousands of years in cultures very different from our own really offer a single cohesive formula for how to be a woman? And do all of the women of scripture fit into this same mold, must I? Uh, And then she leans into her reputation again by saying, As it turns out, there are publishers out there who will actually pay for you to jump down rabbit holes, so long as they believe said rabbit holes are marketable to the general public. So on October 1st, 2010, with the support of her husband, Dan, and a brave team of publishing professionals, I vowed to spend one year of my life in pursuit of true biblical womanhood. This quest of mine required I study every passage of scripture that relates to women and learn how women around the world interpret and apply these patches 
passages to our lives. So that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to go through the Bible and live out, um, sometimes for the whole year and sometimes for just a month at a time, the principles uh, that it sets out for women, which she um, sort of codifies into 12 virtues, one for each chapter and one for each month. Uh, These virtues are gentleness, domesticity, obedience, valor, beauty, modesty, purity, fertility, submission, justice, silence, and grace. Uh, That's the broad scope of the book. And I found another pattern within each chapter. Um, Each chapter seems to have roughly three basic parts. The first being background um, about the term or virtue at hand, which is sometimes social and sometimes biblical, usually outlining relevant verses. That's the first part. Then the second part of every chapter is personal narrative-based, usually involving Evans screwing up whatever she's trying to do um, in ways that are uh, pretty funny and engaging. And then each chapter ends with a related profile of a uh, a female biblical figure. So that's pretty much the project in a nutshell and what the book looks like. Thanks, Victoria. That's a great summary, and I like you how you point out the uh, use of the frame narr- uh, narrative to situate Evans in response to her critics. I think that's a great point. And before we get more into the discussion of the book itself, uh, I can point out, too, that as this somewhat controversial figure, Evans was confronted with some controversy around surrounding uh, the publication of this book even before it was actually published. Um, Sarah, would you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, so the, like Marie just said, a year of biblical womanhood generated a good deal of buzz and a fair share of controversy upon its publication. But some of this buzz started well before its publication. Um, perhaps one of the most famous of these is what quickly became known as uh, Vagina Gate. And this uh, issue or this uh, controversy uh, surrounded uh Evans's editors approaching her and suggesting that she remove the word vagina from her manuscript for a year of biblical womanhood, explaining that, um, among some other reasons, Lifeway Christian bookstores, which I believe is the largest Christian bookstore chain in the country, might not carry the book if the word were left in the manuscript. Um, There were two instances of the word uh, vagina that... uh, potentially concerned some people. One of them uh, involved a description of a youth group purity vow, wherein she indicates, quote, I used the back of my metal chair to scribble my name across the dotted line before marching to the front of the room to pin my promise to God and my vagina onto a giant corkboard for all to see, end quote. Uh, The second indication uh, or the second occurrence of the term vagina relates an account of Uh, indicates an account of rape from half the sky. And that one is, quote, the men shoved a large stick through Dinah's vagina, creating a debilitating fistula, a common ailment among rural African women who have been raped. Um, In response to reader support, when Evans mentioned this, uh, this conversation on her blog, uh, Evans decided to keep the word vagina in her manuscript 
uh, Lifeway did eventually determine not to carry the book in its stores. Um, Lifeway did uh, make some vague references to uh, Evans's publishers, apparently, that uh, reason other than Vagina Gate was hinted at as the primary one for not carrying the book, but nothing more specific was said about the matter. Um, without necessarily intending to, Evans has commented that, you know, she ended up embroiled in some very interesting conversations about the nature of the word vagina and its use in various contexts. Evans pointing out that other books that Lifeway does choose to carry and that in some cases are written by men do include the word vagina and hers for whatever reason. Um, her mention of it was considered to be an issue by some. Um, so that is the controversy as I understand it, the primary one, um, were there other ones that you wanted to talk about, Marie? Uh, no, that was the, the main one. Thanks for that description. Okay. And as, as you might think with a book like this and an author like this, there are also a variety of strong responses after the book's publication, both positive and negative. And uh, with the Vagina Gate issue, one of the things that people speculated was that Perhaps Lifeway didn't want to carry the book just because of its approach to the Bible, though that's, again, like you point out, not clear what the reasons actually were. Um, and in many of the negative responses following the book's publication, there's also a lot of criticism of the treatment of the Bible in the book. You have the you're making fun of the Bible and the perennial you don't believe the Bible and a variety of responses along the lines of you don't understand how biblical interpretation works. Of course, your literalist treatment of biblical womanhood runs into the ridiculous because everyone knows that the Bible should clearly be interpreted in X way. Uh, the problem, of course, being that these ways, these clear uh, ways of interpretation don't always agree with each other. A review by Kathy Keller on the Gospel Coalition takes this tack, and Keller argues in this review that Evans should have attempted to live, she says, by all the commandments that the Bible genuinely addresses to Christian women while discussing the rules of responsible interpretation along the way. But instead, she says, Evan be Evans began the project by ignoring, actually by pretending you did not know about, the most basic rules of hermeneutics and biblical interpretation that have been agreed upon for centuries. Some of these universally agreed upon hermeneutical rules are, according to Keller, the New Testament freedom from Levitical law, interpreting with attention to genre differences within the Bible and taking into account the author's intended meaning within the historical context so that for example, Proverbs 31.23 does not mean that Evans should actually hold a sign reading Dan is awesome by the highway in order to honor her husband at the city gates. Keller claims that ignoring these universal hermeneutical practices and advocating a prejudice of love in our approach to the Bible takes a definition of love from outside the Bible itself so that contemporary sensibilities are Evans' authority and norm. Keller concludes in a scathing address to Evans, quote, You have become what you claim to despise. You have imposed your agenda on scripture in order to advance your own goals. 
In doing so, you have further muddied the waters of biblical interpretation instead of bringing any clarity to the task. As a woman also engaged in trying to understand the Bible as it relates to gender, I had hoped for better. End quote. And Keller's review is fairly mild as far as the negative reviews go. But a review like this, to me, is partly missing the point of a year of biblical womanhood when it comes to biblical interpretation. Part of Evans' project is actually to muddy the waters and to point out that no universal standards of interpretation are actually universally applied um, in attempts to take the Bible as a standard for life, especially in this idea of biblical womanhood. For example, Orthodox Jewish women will still take Levitical law as applicable to their lives. And at the same time, Evans is trying to point out that in one particular approach to biblical womanhood, conservative evangelical complementarianism, these same hermeneutical principles that Keller talks about actually are thought to be applicable, but are not evenly applied, and the texts have not been examined according to those principles as closely as they should be, So, uh, according to Evans, so that, for example, the literal interpretation takes primacy over the historical context when it comes to Paul's comments on the silence of women in the church. In response to Keller's review, Evans points out that she hoped that her book would generate discussion of some of these issues with interpretation, things like, she says, the Greco-Roman household codes found in the epistles of Peter and Paul about the meaning of the Hebrew word azer or the Greek word for deacon, about Paul's line of argumentation in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, about our hermeneutical presuppositions and how they are influenced by our own culture, and about what we really mean when we talk about biblical womanhood. So the humor of her over-literalist interpretations, like the sign beside the highway, is meant to illustrate, Evans says, the futility of a hyper-literal application of the text. And as a whole, the book is meant to open up the question of biblical womanhood again, put it forward for debate, so that at the very least readers can see that the definition of biblical womanhood is not set, as many complementarian writers treat it to be. This, says Evans, is why the phrase biblical womanhood has been such an effective weapon in the gender debates. By its nature, it implies clarity, simplicity, and finality. By its nature, it is immune to questions. So Evans objects to complementarians who, she says, consistently insist that they are not, in fact, interpreting the text, but simply reading and applying its clear teachings and that anyone who might disagree with their conclusions must simply hate the Bible and have no interest in living faithfully by it. But this idea of a simple, unbiased, and patently obvious hermeneutic is an illusion. So part of what Evans tries to do in this book is to show how every approach to the Bible is a biased approach, and this is something that she shares with uh, the approach in The Blue Parakeet, which she quotes often in a year of biblical womanhood, and uh, to show then that interpretation of the Bible is not clear or obvious at all, to all. So, she says, if I have muddied the waters with this project in this book, it's because I have kicked up all those layers of biblical womanhood sediment that have gone unchallenged for so long. 
and I have challenged the supposedly straightforward hermeneutic that has conveniently rendered biblical womanhood into little more than a June Cleaver archetype. So that's some of what one reviewer thinks of uh, Evans' approach to the Bible in Year of Biblical Womanhood and what Evans claims that she's actually trying to do in her approach to the Bible there. But now let's take a look, uh, a little bit deeper look at the book itself. Um, what what do you think of Evans' project and aims? Sarah, would you like to start? Sure, I can start for you. Um, so first of all, I would like to say, and I may reiterate this a couple of times over the course of our discussion, that uh, much of this book actually feels very foreign to me as a 21st century American Catholic. Um, This idea of biblical womanhood is not a conversation that I am familiar with uh, occurring in my own experiences um, as a practicing Catholic. So much of this material did feel very foreign to me. I I feel like I don't have much of a frame of reference for approaching the text. So I came to it very new, if that makes any sense. Um, I can say that um, what I liked most about the thrust of Evans's argument um, is her call to see Proverbs 31, not as a, a prescriptive list, but as descriptive praise, um, not as a to-do list that we should strive for, but something that we should should hold up and value, if, if that distinction is clear. Um, I also valued the research she conducted as part of the project and her attempt to include examples of women from across the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and as a Catholic woman, I particularly appreciated her exploration of contemplative prayer and her silent retreat at the monastery. Um, and at the same time, I found myself wondering about the occasionally arbitrary seeming approach to her methodology. In some places, I felt like the rationale for a given project was explained reasonably well. In others, though, I was curious about the logic behind the execution. And I think that you, Marie, have addressed some of this and Victoria as well in terms of her um, in terms of her approach and her rationale for her approach that um the seeming arbitrariness of some of the execution is in itself a demonstration of some of the arbitrariness of, of applying biblical womanhood as a term, however loaded it might be, to a series of practices. Um, I also couldn't help but feel that some of the attempts to explore the range of biblical womanhood interpretations felt a little slapdash. Um, for example, why were particular women in particular, you know, of particular religious faiths explored in particular chapters? Sometimes I felt like that explanation wasn't as, as clear or I might have missed some of that explanation. Um and finally, the conclusions that she reaches at the end of many of the chapters, um, I found myself feeling, um, either whether it's because I'm a Catholic or not, I take as a matter of course in my own approach to my marriage and to womanhood in general. Um, so I wasn't sure how to process that. Um, I did read one, uh, one Catholic reviewer of Evans who is, who says that she, um, that she feels that Evans would make a great Catholic and that wasn't meant to be, um, not to be taken in a holier than thou way, but as, as an example of the way she ponders spirituality and scripture in some ways is, is very close to what I experience. 
um, particularly in terms of some of the conclusions that she draws. Um, so in short, I, I was intrigued by the project, but I was not interpolated by the project because it, on some levels, because it is such a foreign frame of reference for me. Um, Victoria? Uh, so I pretty much had the opposite experience from the one that you just described. Uh, like Evans, I was raised in the South as an evangelical Protestant. So I, um, I kind of had to keep myself at some points from being so emotionally connected to the book that I missed. Um, like you were saying, some, some of the shortcomings that are, are, um, clear from its research, um, some of the reasonings or lack of reasoning um, behind the choices that she's making, because I kept thinking, like, I really just kind of want to have a glass of wine with this woman and hang out. Um, it's, it's clear that she understands and has experienced a lot of the problems with um, the relationship between gender and the church that I have felt my whole life. So I, I had to kind of keep pinching myself and pulling myself back and saying, you know, think think critically about these things and, and don't just say like, yeah, yeah, I don't like that too. Um, so, so that was, that kind of moving back and forth, that kind of oscillation was, was interesting for me. Um, the one thing that kind of kept happening as I was reading, I, I talked about the kind of threefold chapter structure, um, wherein each chapter ends with the profile of a biblical woman. Um, that part took me out of the book the most. It felt um, pretty Christian bookstory to me, um, and, and a little bit preachy, especially next to the personal narrative sections. Um, that there's a, a was in many cases a kind of jarring um, tonal difference. Also, um, those sections are in a different font and kind of boxed out, so so maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into the paratext there as well. But um, ultimately, when I started thinking about those disconnections, um, I felt better about them. I feel like there's a kind of messy cohesion to the book that fits in with its tone. It's like we're all just women trying to figure this out and nobody knows what's right and is there a right let's just sort of be nice to ourselves and and realize that we're all muddling through this together um ultimately i i could really relate to that approach yeah and one thing that both you and sarah point out is that this book is really centered on a, a very specific audience or um or at least has as its subject a very specific group of people and their view of gender, this conservative evangelical complementarian community. And so that, that, that's actually something that I think could have been more specifically worked out in the book a little bit. And something that some reviewers have noted too, that she could have perhaps uh, included more women who would identify themselves as conservative evangelical complementarians among the people that she interviews and so have embedded conservative complementarianism more fully into the spectrum of approaches to biblical womanhood that she's talking about, especially since placing it on that spectrum is really one of Evan's main goals in showing that it exists uh, complementarianism exists in, in this range of interpretations. Um, and another thing 
that was interesting to me in the way is in the way that Evan structures the book um, with the mixture of virtues or attributes that would generally be celebrated in a conservative complementarianism view, such as domesticity, obedience, submission, or fertility, um, as well as attributes that would generally not have received as much emphasis in a traditional complementarian view, such as valor or justice. Um, and that, I think, is part of what you observe Victoria with this messy cohesion that the book seems to present. And um, it, it seems a little bit internally inconsistent, but works overall pretty well with the aims of the project, I think. So, so Sarah, would you talk about uh, two chapters that deal with uh, some of these more traditionally complementarian values, uh, the ones of dom domesticity and submission? Sure, I can talk about two, uh, those two, which I have to admit are two of the chapters uh, with which I have struggled the most. Um, going by the definitions we've outlined earlier, these, as Marie just said, would be considered requirements for biblical womanhood by uh, conservative complementarians, uh, but perhaps not so by egalitarians. They are in some ways perhaps the most essential of complementarian requirements. So in the chapter on domesticity, Evans begins by uh, coming up with a list of uh, things that she's going to do as she does in all of her chapters. And for this particular month, which I believe was the month of November, um, she decides to cook her way through Martha Stewart's cooking school, clean through Martha Stewart's homekeeping handbook, um, host a dinner party, and ultimately host Thanksgiving dinner. So, um, and so she, as we've talked before, uh, then discusses her, um, her struggles through the processes herself, which as someone who is still trying to learn how to cook in uh, keep my own house clean, I could relate to. Um, one of the things that I did really like about uh, one of her conclusions from this chapter is that, and this comes from page 30, is that if God is the God of all pots and pans, then he is also the God of all shovels and computers and paints and assembly lines and executive offices and classrooms. Peace and joy belong not to the woman who finds the right vocation, but to the woman who finds God in any vocation who looks for the divine around every corner. And this was as a result of her uh, project, I believe, cleaning her kitchen and finding the work itself as a form of prayer, which I uh, really, I really enjoyed. She also um, connects herself to the story of Martha and Mary, not Martha Stewart, but uh, the Martha and Mary uh, from the Bible and identifies um, and, and identifies with Martha, even while she recognizes that Mary's uh, project was valuable in its own way, and that perhaps we need to re-examine our approaches to that story, which I personally found um, intriguing because my mother participates in a women's Bible study at our church back in Atlanta. And last year, the theme was about living like Mary in a Martha world, which I thought was, which I thought was a really neat approach to Bible studies as, as an anecdote. Um, meanwhile, the chapter on submission feels in some ways like the most prescriptive 
Um, it is in this chapter that she adopts uh, what she calls um, a, a to-do list of a 1950s housewife in the name of uh, biblical submission to her husband, including um, what we've called earlier the June Cleaver archetype. Um, dressing nicely when he comes home, preparing drinks and making him comfortable and doing everything he says. Um, it's amusing that as a part of this uh, experiment in submission, um, her husband, Dan, recounts that he feels incredibly uncomfortable with this approach, which feels very artificial. And he commands that she stop with that part of the project. And as part of her submission, she does and stops that part of the project. Um, Evans, Evans' conclusion from this chapter appears to be a validation of an egalitarian approach to marriage. Um, and I particularly like the emphasis on the original meaning of what has become the term help meet, which I believe, Marie, you mentioned earlier, um, with the focus on helping each other rather than on one person, in this case, the woman exclusively helping the other, in this case, the man. Um, the focus on mutuality that Evans uh, holds up and, and values in her conclusion to this chapter um, is one that does receive support in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and is most reassuring to me. I also appreciate the context provided. Um, this is the one where she talks about Greco-Roman household, co household codes and um, examining some of these passages in their historical contexts. Um, and I guess here I would like to mention that... Um, as part of this egalitarian complementarian uh, discussion um, that these terms for me, I've, I've been trying to work through because uh, the, the Catholic church uses the terms complementarianism and egalitarianism uh, very differently than, um, than I believe the uh, evangelical Protestant community does. Um, Catholics tend to see egalitarianism as it is defined in the secular world. Um, so it, it becomes a purely secular term, whereas complementarianism uh, to many Catholics is not about rigid gender roles, um, is not so much about the rigid gender roles, although it does hold up and, and value and indeed celebrate uh, the masculine and feminine um, as unique gifts of God. Um, but Catholic views of complementarianism don't necessarily go so far as to define gender roles rigidly. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That, that was the summary of the two chapters. And I did, I did find myself um, coming from my own experience with the terms uh, complementarian and egalitarian um, struggling with them. And then also um, one of the things that we mentioned just uh, in closing, uh, we talked about uh, how Evans talks about um, trying to muddy the waters and open up the question of biblical womanhood and what these mean. At the same time, in chapters, particularly like the chapter on submission, she seems to be taking a very clear stance. Um, in this case, a clear stance on an you know, on valuing an egalitarian approach to marriage and gender roles that seems like it might work counter to the project of merely opening up the discussion, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. You make some great points about those chapters. And uh, I like how you, you point out the 
uh, that part of the unevenness or the the perception of unevenness in this book is um that Evans tends to bring up both sort of positive and negative a- aspects of these of any of the attributes that she teaches but uh, I mean that she treats but um but that submission pretty much she's looking at that as negative and um i think that doesn't necessarily run counter to her project as it, as it relates to biblical interpretation but that definitely her own personal view is certainly egalitarian and that's what she wants to argue for um but but still the the her her interpretation of the bible itself i, I think um she's pointing out that multiple approaches can be taken and one of them would be the egalitarian approach um and you point out also the uh, the specific ways in which she's using the terms or dealing with the ideas of complementarianism and egalitarianism which is definitely again this specific audience and specific uh, group that she's talking about um so it's good to have your perspective as someone more outside of that group uh, in the way that you're raised than Victoria or I would be. <laughs> um, and Victoria, would you talk about uh, two of the attributes that have not traditionally been central to that kind of specific evangelical complementarian view of womanhood, valor and justice? Sure. Uh, I, I should first say that I picked um I, I picked the chapters that were assigned to me before I read the book and I I picked these two chapters um because they sounded cool because they sounded very like fairy queen and very epic poetry like valor and justice that's <laughs> exciting <laughs> and uh and and though that reason was kind of silly um I was surprised at how much that train of thought really resonated through what the chapters were actually about. Uh, Sarah has already mentioned that the chapter on valor deals primarily with Proverbs 31, which we on this podcast have um, have discussed frustration with before um, and, and sort of tried to find different angles with uh, talking about um, the voice of King Lemuel's mother and, and how... Um, this passage coming from her voice and instructing men um, is really interesting from a Christian feminist perspective, but how also um, this is a passage of scripture that gets sort of shoved in um, particularly evangelical Protestant women's faces in a way that can be frustrating. So while I was excited about Valor, when I flipped to the chapter and saw it was about Proverbs 31, I was like, oh, this again, I'm just going to feel terrible about all the stuff I don't do. And blah. But um, the, the chapter dealt with that in a way that actually made me feel um, really good and learned a lot. So um, first... Evans talks about the history of the phrase, I know I'm going to butcher this, sorry people who speak Hebrew, Echet Hayil, meaning valorous woman, woman of valor. She says, um, the structure and diction employed in the poem closely resembles that of a heroic poem celebrating the exploits of a warrior. Lost to English readers are the militaristic nuances found in the language. She talks about words for... Uh, prey and booty and spies and uh, 
and a sort of outfitting of the warrior section where she girds her loins. So um, in, instead of being a very kind of, you know, a pink-hued, flowery to-do list for womanhood, um, this generically has a lot in common with the epic poem, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Furthermore, she says, the only instructive language it contains is directed toward men, with the admonition that a thankful husband honor his wife for all that her hands have done. Uh, Old Testament scholar Ellen F. Davis notes the poem was intended not to honor one particularly praiseworthy woman, but rather to underscore the central significance of women's skilled work in a household-based economy. She concludes that it will not do to make facile comparisons between the biblical figure and the suburban housewife, or alternately between her and the modern career woman. Um, then Evan says, so the problem actually is not this passage, but the problem is that we, as 21st century Christian readers, have turned this passage into basically a Christian-flavored um, mommy wars industry. We've taken this passage that actually says... I don't, I don't want to use actually, like there's one interpretation, but that in an earlier context says, hey, women, your female work is important and valuable, and turned it into, you are a bad woman if you don't do X, Y, Z. Um, so she says that, that we've sort of foisted this problem um, on ourselves. And um, I... I read this chapter in a time when I was feeling really personally kind of overloaded, like I was doing 500 things really poorly instead of doing a couple of things really well. So personally, I, I really got, uh, I really felt kind of blessed by the chapter's message of, uh, you know, if you try, if you realize that you're really doing a lot of work, if you realize that, you know, um, that all of these things that go into your daily life are actually work um, that maybe don't get valued like they should, then you are a hiet khalil, you are a woman of valor. Um, so that made me feel better about myself, but also, even though she preaches against this to-do list idea, as Sarah was saying, um, she literally turns Proverbs 31 into a to-do list. Um, she has to get up before dawn, she has to um, do arm workouts because she girds herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She has to <laughs> clean the house, do these other things. So while I understand, like, because, because the book exists the way the book exists, while I understand what this to-do list is doing, it was kind of frustrating to see, like, why are we turning everything into a to-do list? Oh, here's a checklist on the next page. <laughs> uh, that was, that was a little frustrating. Um, one of the things in the chapter that she wants to learn to do is uh, learn how to sew. Um, and she, we get some funny passages where she's terrible at sewing. And eventually her solution is to uh, convene a sewing party in her house where a bunch of women who learn how to sew um, basically do most of the work for her, but also teach her how to do things. Um, so I liked and did not like that solution. I liked that the solution was a community of women helping each other. I didn't really like that there aren't kind of a lot of consequences for her just kind of, I don't know, not really doing it. Um, 
And, and then I, of course, felt bad about criticizing another woman's choices, which is, is something that she, she talks about in the book at length. So a lot of what you're going to hear me say is me going back and forth about positive and negative uh, responses. So that's pretty much the Valor chapter. Uh, the Justice chapter begins by her saying that there's not really a Hebrew word for uh, for charity. Instead, they have a word that's closer to justice. Uh, while the word charity, she says, connotes a single act of giving, justice speaks to right living of aligning oneself with the world in a way that sustains rather than exploits the rest of creation. Justice is not a gift, it's a lifestyle, a commitment to the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world. So in keeping with this idea of looking at the big picture and repairing the world, in the Justice chapter, Evans um, wants to think about her connection to women at large and the world at large, and she does that in a couple of ways. Um, First, she reads the book Half the Sky, which we've already mentioned, which talks about the power of women to um, to change the world um, and save themselves. Talks a lot about equipping women within uh, in disadvantaged countries with their own businesses and and the importance of schooling girls, things like that. So she reads this book, and then she goes to is it Bolivia that she goes to? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm, I'm sure, Marie, you're going to maybe talk a little bit more about that since you've actually been to Bolivia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so she goes to Bolivia with world vision and meets women and talks to them, broadens her perspective in that way. Um, and also she tries to um, put her money where her mouth is, literally. She switches to fair trade coffee and chocolate, Um uh, apparently she's pretty pretty addicted to caffeine in both of those forms and is trying to shop a little bit more ethically um, in, in those small ways. Um, that's pretty much the center of the chapter. I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, this chapter's um, biblical woman uh, at the end. While I've, I've already expressed a little frustration with that construction, um, the one at the end of this chapter was one I had never, I think the only one in the book I had never heard of before, um, which is Junia, the Apostle. And so Evans talks about how there's there's some debate over, um, over the section of scripture that calls Junia an Apostle. People have debated whether she actually was one um, or whether she was just beloved by the Apostles. Um, some people got so upset by the inclusion of a possible female apostle that Junia became Junius, um, a man, even though that male name doesn't really exist, uh, not just in scripture, but anywhere um, in the period. So I thought that that was really interesting, that um, that here is a woman in that's only mentioned once in a really tiny portion of scripture, um, but that her very existence sort of created this um, this textual fight. I, I found that really, really interesting. That you know the the presence of women among the apostles, um, n- not surprising, but interesting that the presence of women among the apostles caused um, such a big kind of kerfluffle. 
I think with um, these sort of sidebar descriptions of the biblical women, uh, this is one way in which Evans is responding to Scott McKnight's uh, The Blue Parakeet, which she frequently quotes in the year of biblical womanhood. Um, because in The Blue Parakeet, in the second half of the book, McKnight is arguing for the full inclusion of women in church ministries, and he's doing this partly through talking about the idea of what did women do in the Bible as a way of thinking about what women can now do in the church. Um, and I think she's making sort of implicitly a similar argument with these um, sort of added descriptions of biblical women that the women in the Bible did these things, had these various attributes, and so we can look for those kinds of things in um, an egalitarian view of how women can participate in the church today, too. Um, and definitely uh, the discussion of Junia uh, comes from McKnight, I think. Um, so also with uh, the use of or the inclusion of valor and justice um, um, among many more traditional kinds of aspects of complementarian womanhood, um, we we see this mixture of positive and negative and, and empowering and disenfranchising kinds of approaches to defining womanhood in the Bible. Um, and all of this begs the question of what is Evans' overall conclusions that she draws from these explorations and enactments of these differing or sort of conflicting attributes. And I think that with her summary of conclusions in, near the end of the September chapter, you have a little bit of this, uh, I guess a little bit of this uneasiness that Sarah mentions about how does the specific biblical interpretation that Evans is advocating sit with her idea that biblical interpretation itself is not sort of a settled question. Um, because in this section, you have uh, first her list of New, Test New Year's re resolutions and then her discussion of the Bible. And in this list of New Year's resolutions, she has things as diverse as eating more ethically, praising women of valor, thanking and praising her husband, Dan, uh, attempting more spiritual contemplation and ritual, and continuing to struggle with the Bible. These are things that she draws from the project as things that she should do more in her life. And after this partly humorous and partly serious exploration of what the Bible says about women that this project has entailed for her, Evans asks what biblical womanhood actually is and says, I'd arrived at the rather unconventional conclusion that there is no such thing. The Bible does not present us with a single model for womanhood. And the notion that it contains a sort of one-size-fits-all formula for how to be a woman of faith is a myth. So instead, Evans says that the calling to love God is a Christian calling that transcends gender roles, and that should then take precedence over them in our interpretation. And she advocates applying a prejudice of love as we wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible. Um, so, so you do have that uneasiness of 
it's open to question, but also she has one particular answer, um, which is, uh, I, I think, uh, valid in terms of her presenting her own personal arguments. And in advocating this prejudice of love, Evans looks to Jesus's summary of the law and the prophets um, as the two commandments to love God and to love others. She says later on her blog in response to Keller's charge that this prejudice of love is extra biblical. Uh, Evans actually sees this as a characteristic of Jesus's own approach to the Bible. And so one that she thinks we might pay attention to. She says, if love was Jesus's definition of biblical, then perhaps it should be mine. So it's not necessarily a, a full-fledged hermeneutical framework for interpretation, but rather this statement that love should be the bias with which we approach the Bible. And I think that's something um, you see similar statements like this emerging more and more in uh, discussions of hermeneutics as they're applied, especially to gender and sexuality. So what are some other things that we'd like to bring up or, or mention in relation to anything to do with this book? Um, any other things that caught your attention? Uh, something that I was troubled by and also appreciated is that she, um, you, you covered this a little bit, Marie, but she basically says, you know, we, we all cherry pick, we all pick and choose, um, the, the sort of parts of the Bible that we follow literally or the parts of the Bible that we sort of subconsciously hold as more important or less important. And she sort of says that that's okay in that she says that it's unavoidable, um, but, but she also interrogates how that cherry-picking process goes um, in a way that I found smart. Um she says, for those who count the Bible as sacred, interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick and choose, but how to pick and choose. We are all selective. We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. Um, and further down on the same page, this is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? Uh... In the deeper recesses of my heart and mind, I think I was looking for permission. Permission to lead, permission to speak, permission to find my identity in something other than my roles, permission to be myself, permission to be a woman. Uh, and and while that section got a, a, a little too Oprah for me at the end, a, a little too um, sort of self-helpy and a little too choice feminism-y, honestly, a little too, like, whatever you do is right. Um, I, I did like her tendency to to talk about picking and choosing and saying, like, let's just, let's just realize that when the rubber meets the road, this is something that we all do, so we should all admit to it, and we should all interrogate why we're picking what we're picking. Yeah, and I think that that is um, something that she's actually has in common with uh, Scott McKnight's blue parakeet as well as in, in the first part of that book. He also devotes a lot of space to illustrating that everybody is selective in how they interpret the Bible, that there is this picking and choosing or selecting and adapting, uh, adopting and adapting, as he says, going on in our approaches to the Bible. And so part of 
part of Evan's overall project, I think, is pointing out that we need to be self-aware in realizing that we have an approach to the Bible and uh, and sort of nailing down for ourselves what our hermeneutic is as we interpret the Bible. Um, and that's, I mean, that is something that she doesn't sort of prescriptively uh, give in a year of biblical womanhood, but leaves that open, I, I think, for uh, her readers to decide and what hermeneutic are they going to adopt or how can we be more aware of the hermeneutic that we hold? Um, whereas uh, Scott McKnight was uh, presenting this idea of adoption and uh, adaptation as a way of introducing the hermeneutic that he wants to endorse, which is this um, narrative view of the Bible. Um, so that's something that some people have said is missing from a year of biblical womanhood, but it's also, I think, one of the strengths that she does leave that open and just is just saying that we need to be self-aware in how we think about biblical interpretation. Um, one thing, one other thing that struck me in reading this and it, what you mentioned was what you mentioned, Victoria, um, the uh, trip to Bolivia in uh, the justice chapter. Um, and I was interested in that as someone who grew up in Bolivia and has visited Cochabamba more than once. So partly the account made me think a little bit more about the country where I was raised and think about it in a new way, recognizing uh, hardships and abuse that were no doubt many people I came into contact with were suffering and that I didn't you know, think about deeply when I was there. But also partly this account and I can't nail it down specifically, but it felt a little bit like exoticism in some parts. And yes. This is something that yes. you get in some passages in Evans evolving in Monkey Town to some sort of slightly uncomfortable uh, passages dealing with other cultures like her trip to India. Um, and yeah, I, I would say there's definitely there's suffering and abuse and injustice in every part of the world. Um, and that women and their education and working towards better education of, and empowerment of women are part of the solution to that in every part of the world. But it's not, I mean, Bolivian women are not by nature, you know, sweeter or more innocent or something like that than <laughs> in other parts of the world. Um, but again, I can't really nail that down specifically in the account. It's just sort of the tone that made me feel like that. Yeah, I wanted to, um, I, I should have mentioned that when I was talking about the justice chapter that I, but I, I didn't really, as you said, kind of know how to articulate it. Um, that is the part of the book that felt the most to me like a middle-class overeducated white woman writing to middle-class overeducated white women. I yeah. mean, I mean, you know, we, yes, which is, which I mean, is us as well, right, of course. Right. All, all three of us are, um, yeah. but I, yeah, I did. It was a little exoticized and it was a little like, you know, the, these virtuous poor people. Um, yes. though I, I think that she tries to smooth that over a little bit with, with the end of the chapter. Um, here's that chapter's final paragraph. 
What I love about the ministry of Jesus is that he identified the poor as blessed and the rich as needy, and then he went and ministered to them both. This, I think, is the difference between charity and justice. Justice means moving beyond the dichotomy between those who need and those who supply, and confronting the frightening and beautiful reality that we desperately need one another. That's what I love about the kingdom. For the poor there is food, for the rich there is joy, for all of us there is grace. I... I think that that ending, while maybe a little too tidy, um, at least tries to do some of the work that we were talking about is maybe missing from the rest of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. My um, concern, actually, about that chapter, I absolutely um, understand your uneasiness with it, Victoria, and some of the points that you raised, Marie. I... I have to admit that this trip was sponsored, was it not? Um, like the trip was paid for if she agreed to mention the organization in her book or something like that. Does the, does the chapter yeah, mention she, she something like that? She partnered with world vision, which is a, a really huge um, missionary organization. And she, one of the things in her resolutions at the end of the book is basically continuing to do things for them and put them on her website. Right. So I, I cringed a little bit. That part for me actually felt a little bit commercial and I, and, and I wasn't sure what to do with that, but, um, but yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying about feeling like if feeling some uneasiness about the, the trip itself and the way she describes it. Um, I was also going to say just anecdotally that my uh, advanced placement students had just finished reading Heart of Darkness and Things Fall Apart when I read this book. And so I had I had Achebe and Conrad, uh, you know, clanging around in my head while I was reading her her visit. And the and like you've all mentioned, the extent to which she uh, it, it sounds a little bit like whether intentionally or not, she's exoticizing her experiences in Bolivia. And I couldn't help remembering the the passage of the woman in um, Heart of Darkness when Marlo, when Marlo notices the African woman who wails. She, she comes forward and she's dressed very exotically. Anyway, the terms in which he refers to the women in that book. Um, anyway, all of which to say that made me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, I think you guys have done it. It, it was sponsored because she says in the chapter that um, the trip was partly to raise funds for World Vision's child sponsorship program by sharing about the experience on her blog. So that was the, the raising money was part of the <laughs> purpose there. Right. Okay. So yeah, I was a little bit confused about that. And I wondered if something like that would have taken place, like if she would have taken something like that upon herself with, without that sort of partnership or, or incentive or, or whatever that might've been, um, which might have been overly critical on my part. Um, but she's upfront about the money the whole yeah. time, right? yeah, which yeah. is a good yeah. point. Yeah. She, yeah. she says in the section that I read at the beginning that like, Mm -hmm. Um, yes, this is a gimmick blog. Uh, this is a book that came out of basically a gimmick blog and there are other gimmick blogs and she calls out, um, AJ Jacobs year of living biblically as well. Um, so 
Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but I also have a lot of respect for her saying, like, there is money involved in this. I am a famous blogger who has a famous blog the whole time. There are links to her blog yeah, at yeah. the end of every chapter. Like, this mm -hmm. is something that, you know, kind of ugly and yeah, commercial not or hidden. not, she's totally <laughs> upfront about. Right. And that's a good point. Um, and yeah, so that's something for me to keep in mind. Um, the only other response I, I had to the book, and I've sort of alluded to this before, I would be really interested to see um, what, uh, what approaches to this idea of biblical womanhood, um, you know, the, the sense in which it is a catchphrase um, as such aside, looks like in other Judeo-Christian traditions. I know she she mentions interviewing and, and talking to and with and about uh, women from across the Judeo-Christian uh, spectrum, but I a part of me wanted to hear more about how this might work in, for example, a Catholic setting or do um, or get even more exposure than we already do to the uh, to the Jewish woman she um, connects with and and consults throughout the project. Um, yeah, I agree. I, really I wanted more of her. Like yes, she sounded um, pretty awesome, and I wanted more of the Amish ladies too. Yes, yeah. and the the nun. She interviewed a nun, didn't she, at some point, um, or talked about it? And yeah, I would like to see more of that. <laughs> I don't know if that's a different project for a different book, uh, either by her or by somebody else, but I, I would really like to see what that looks like in other traditions. All right. So I guess we can move on <laughs> to our final segment now, unless there's any further comments. No? We'll move no. On to, I think we're ready to move on. We'll move on now to passing it on then, um, where we'll present our recommendations for further reading. Sarah, would you like to give your recommendation? Sure. My recommendation uh, for today is actually a Catholic review of Evans's book. It took me a while to uh, to find some and a while to find some rooting around. Uh, I had to do some rooting around to find one. Um, but mine is uh, it's uh, by Devin Rose um, on the blog St. Joseph's Vanguard, and it's a post titled Shine, Complementarian Wife, Shine. Um, Rose, uh, Rose in this uh, review um, takes a critical eye to Evans's work um, and then highlights uh, some of the problems he sees with the term complementarian as, as it is understood in Evans's book. And then from a Catholic perspective, uh, provides some examples of, um, of, women who uh who uh are upfront about their own um their own endorsement of complementarian marriage the terminology is a, as i've mentioned before is a little bit different in these contexts but i think that that some of the examples he provides um and some of the comments he makes about evans's book are uh, perhaps worth considering and putting into the conversation. I know they might simply because I know they might not be some of the more well-known reviews of the work, but might be worth examining so that we can try to get a picture of how uh, Evans's work is being perceived outside of the evangelical Protestant community. Thanks, Sarah. Victoria, what would uh, your recommendation be? 
So my recommendation uh, is to read, to read a little bit more about someone that Evans mentions in the Justice chapter of the book, and that is uh, Dorothy Day, who was um, a socialist Catholic activist. And I've been spending the past month or so um, reading more about her. I just recently started reading her autobiography, The Long Loneliness, which is what I'm recommending. And she, um, I, I can't believe I spent basically my whole life being ignorant of her, because she basically her story um, is really resonant with with problems and issues that I try to navigate um, as a as a socially conscious woman of faith. Um, her story is really interesting. She wrestles with uh, with the idea of being a mother for a really long time. Um, she finally has a child and then the man she has a child with wants no part of the child's life so she um, takes her kid and and goes. Um, to find people that will support her and will also support her kind of Christian um, socialist vision uh, has a, a lot of a lot of struggles, but really tries to um, to help people above all. She's a really interesting figure, so I would recommend um, learning more about Dorothy Day primarily by reading her autobiography, The Long Loneliness. That sounds great. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> Um, my recommendation has to do with a sort, sort of a, a glaring omission that you have in A Year of Biblical Womanhood and really a lot of other books that deal with the question of biblical interpretation and gender, gender roles. And you'll see this in Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist, too, where you don't have, you have a lot of discussion of gender, but you don't really have any discussion of sexuality or of sexual identities that don't fit into either um, the complementarian um, or egalitarian view of of gender when it comes to marriage. Um, and I, I was at the Gay Christian Network's annual conference this January, where Rachel Held Evans was one of the keynote speakers. So in one of the Q&A sessions, I asked her, um, if her egalitarian view of gender has anything to do with her acceptance of the idea that same-sex unions can be sanctioned within the church, because for me that, that makes a lot of sense that there could be a link between the two. But I was surprised that uh, at her answer that um, it wasn't really that connected for her, but rather she started thinking about the question of same-sex unions in the church when she read um, a book about uh, the Civil War as a theological crisis and how biblical interpretation um, was the, the biblical interpretation of slavery was so debated around the period of the Civil War um, and you have these constant references to the idea that the Bible is clear um, the Bible it's it's very plain that you have the support for slavery, and this is a book by a scholar Mark Knoll that she is referencing. Um, so I want to recommend a blog post where titled "Is Abolition Biblical?" where uh, Rachel Held Evans talks about this book, "The Civil War as Theological Crisis," and starts to relate that to the idea of um, the marginalization of some 
uh, some groups within the church. And she says near the end of that post, I wonder about uh, other things besides uh, the gender equality discussion about homosexuality, for example. And I confess I spend some nights lying awake, watching the lights from passing cars make strange shapes on my walls, wondering if we've done it again, if we've marginalized another group of people because we believe the Bible told us to. Um, so that blog post and uh, another one where she talks about um, her concerns with homosexuality in the church would be my recommendations. So thank you for listening to uh, this episode. You can contact us at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com and you can get show notes at christianhumanist.org. Our next show will continue to address the idea of biblical womanhood with a discussion of Sarah Bessie's book, Jesus Feminist. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.